Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Sony hacking story. So, Richard, we've had this big explosion in Hollywood over the last few weeks over the fact that Sony had a bunch of emails and internal documents released by hackers. A lot of people in the entertainment industry are, are up in arms over this now. And there's sort of two parts to this, the fact that the information was obtained in the first place and the fact that it's now being circulated in the press. So that, that second part's obviously juicier and we'll do that in a moment. But let's just start with the first issue. Do we really have any uh, meaningful remedies to address the release of this kind of purloined information? Because this seems like a classic example where your, your ex post action can be punitive but not remedial, right? You can't unring this bell once the information is out there. Is, is, there, is that a fair way to characterize it? Uh, regrettably, yes. I mean one of the things that one knows about trade secrets in general, um, and that includes routine stuff about salaries and so forth, is that you have a perfect right to keep it secret. But it turns out that once it gets out there, given the reply all button is one of the most dangerous weapons in history, now <laughs> only surplanted by, of course, the, the, the retweet uh, to millions of people. Um, once it's out, it's gone. And so there's really nothing whatsoever that you can do to bring it all back. What you can do and what I think David's boys is trying to do is to say, I may not be able to stop all of this stuff, but I could at least slow it down a little bit so that we could regain our equilibrium and breathe. But I can only do that if everybody in this business decides not to broadcast it. I realize that if I get consensually, say, 95% of the outlets to say, we're not going to do a single thing with respect to this stuff because we think it was tainted, the other 5% will then have a field day. And so what he kind of feels himself drawn to do is to make it very clear in all of these kinds of cases that everybody has to play along. And the only thing that will give him that option is, in fact, a lawsuit. And that's why he's filing it. Um, does it have any interim effect? I don't think so, frankly. Is he going to win? I suspect not. So, I mean, one of the real risks that you take is you make a bad situation worse by creating a legal stink and then being unable to follow up about it. And there are a lot of First Amendment buffs out there who are just absolutely overjoyed about the prospects of bashing David Boyce on this kind of situation. I don't know whether I would have filed the suit or not. I, I, my own view is I think he's got a lot to say on his behalf. The current law, however, is I think heavily lined against him. And Boys is there representing Sony. We should clarify yes. for the audience. Let's um, let's talk about those obligations that the the press may or may not have here. Because Aaron Sorkin, the famous Hollywood screenwriter, wrote a piece in the New York Times last weekend in which he called the media's use of the information that was released in these documents, and I'm quoting here, morally treasonous and spectacularly dishonorable. So, what obligations? Do the media outlets have, given that this information is out there, but that they weren't the ones who unearthed it to respect the the privacy rights that certain people in the entertainment industry are claiming? Yes, look, I mean, the Sorkin stuff is, is fine literature, but it's not very instructive as a matter of law. Because after you start talking about it as being treasonous and dishonorable, you still have to ask the question of whether or not it's legal or illegal. And there are many defenders of the First Amendment who say, even though something may be treasonous and dishonorable, it is still legal for you to do it because the best solution with respect to the release of information is the release of more information that will counteract it, which is silly in this particular case. There's nothing about 
about the salary of, of high-level Sony officials that can be released to clarify and improve this situation. In terms of the current legality, um, the basic position is that the people who did release this stuff are subject to very serious criminal um, sanctions. But once the information is released, the dominant view, although it's never been on exactly these facts, has been that somebody who acquires legally information which he knows was illegally acquired by its own source may use that information without regard to the prior illegality and escape all kinds of sanctions. So the theory is you're not allowed to touch the stuff once it reaches the New York Times, even though you may be able to punish criminally the hacker who broke in. And it's also the case that Sony is entitled to use any and all self-help devices that it has to make sure that it never gets out. And it probably could enjoin the further release of that information by the people who actually hack it, even though it can't do it by those people who take it from it. It's a series of very complicated and somewhat artificial distinctions. Richard, one of the points that Sorkin raises in protest to the release of this information is that he says the information isn't isn't newsworthy. So he concedes, for instance, that the Pentagon Papers were also stolen but says in essence, look, the Pentagon Papers related to vital issues of state. This is a bunch of chatter amongst Hollywood executives. That That's certainly an intelligible distinction but is it a legally salient one? Well, it turns out this is very much in dispute. Um, the question a long time ago began with the famous article by uh, Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis called Privacy, The Right to Privacy, published in the Harvard Law Review. And, and what they did is they said that the prying eyes of the newspapers have to be kept out. So when they start publishing salacious tidbits about Warren's daughter's wedding and so forth, uh, both Brandeis and Warren went up and said the right of privacy protects it. By the time we've gone through the next 30 or 40 years, what happens is the newsworthiness exception to this became as broad as the basic principle itself. And so the famous case in 1940 is a case called Citus Abance, the New Yorker, in which James Thurber, believed, wrote this thing about a man named Citus who was a child prodigy who spent his adult life collecting streetcar transfers in Boston, who subsequently died of the shame and mortification of this thing being published. And the Second Circuit said, sorry, the newsworthiness principle covers the private lives of former public celebrities. So it's a very broad definition. And in 1960, my late colleague Harry Calvin, when he wrote about this, said, look, the newsworthiness principle of has swallowed the tort, and that ironically the rules that uh, – Brandeis and Warren proposed back in 1890 is probably in violation and an affront to the First Amendment. So that then gets to your question. Is there anything which the public wants to know that isn't newsworthy? And Sorkin is taking a line that I'm actually quite sympathetic, which is the objectivist point of view, which says, look, there are certain things that deal with public figures and public officials, perhaps in their former as well as their present life, or with major foreign policy type issues, and those things would be regarded as newsworthy. But if you for example, take cases like the Dun and Bradstreet case from about 30 odd years ago, or 20 odd years ago, rather. Um, this was a question as to whether or not it was newsworthy to release a credit report about some particular firm. And you can see how all sorts of people be stumbling over themselves to get that kind of information. But the Supreme Court said, no, it's not. And I would think that on the battle of analogies, uh, the cases we have here look more like the credit report and less like the Pentagon Papers. And even with the Pentagon Papers, newsworthiness is not an absolute privilege. So that when Justice Brennan wrote about this, he said, you know, uh, you're talking about how it was that the United States got involved in Vietnam. But if you wanted to 
release newsworthy information about the transit schedules for military vessels going into combat zones, that's treason. And we can shut that down as well. So there are lots of things that are newsworthiness that are so essential you can't publish them at all. So the category essentially kind of disintegrates under your fingertips. But my sympathies lie with um, our friend Sorkin on this. Supreme Court, perhaps the other way. You mentioned the letter that David Boyes sent over the weekend to the media threatening action on Sony's behalf. Part of that letter included a reference to uh, – and I'm quoting here – the loss of value of intellectual property and trade secrets from the release of these documents. Does Sony have any stronger leg to stand on given that some of this information is essential to their business operations? Yes. I mean, I, as I started at the outset, trade secrets are strongly protected against injunctions, but it's sort of an open question as to whether or not the repetition of that information is something which is going to be protected. Um, the Bart Nicky case, which everybody will um, talk about, was a situation in which a union operative started to use a cell phone and her conversation was overheard by somebody else who then promptly published it in the media and it was illegally seized and then it was held by the Supreme Court, Justice Stevens writing, uh, that it was legally used and that you couldn't shop, shut this stuff down. That's a strong precedent against the boy's position. His answer is going to be is, well, when you get on a cell phone, everybody knows that the, you can be intercepted. You haven't taken any particular security precautions. But Sony put this stuff behind a fortified wall and the wall happened to be breached. And therefore, it's a very different situation, both in terms of the kinds of information you had, the quality of the information you have, the quantity of the information you have, and the protection that you wanted to give to that information. So he's going to say that the case is not dispositive. The broader language in the Stevens opinion tends to basically make very little attachment to these kinds of weights. There is the usual sentence in there, which nobody quite believes that this is a narrow decision. And we'll see whether or not it holds or not holds. I know for me, my basic vow is I will not read any information that I regard as having been purloined, even if somebody were to throw it in front of my face, because I do believe, in fact, uh, that that's my little form of self-help with respect to these characters. I mean, I don't think that this stuff should come out. If they took the NYU or the Chicago or the Hoover files and splattered them all over the place, I would be very upset about it and would hope that other people would start to do the same thing. But the Supreme Court, as I wrote a long time ago, is sort of basically takes a very different view of the subject and it develops what I call First Amendment exceptionalism, which is that the normal rules that deal with property, like trade secrets, for example, employment contracts seem not to apply when the Constitution is at stake. And I don't believe that freedom of speech is the ability to do whatever you want. I think there are strong definitions of freedom that prevent you from engaging in force and fraud and theft and so forth, and that the standard rule with respect to the theft of goods is that if you sell it to somebody else who knows it's illegal, he's a fence and he can go to jail too. And I think the same thing should apply to information. But that's not what the Supreme Court has said. So sort of to that point, this is the last question that, that I ask you. Walk us through this at an institutional level. This case has received an increased amount of attention because it involves Hollywood. But this, this is the world we live in now. It doesn't seem like you can go a month without a big story that stems from someone getting digital records surreptitiously. Do we have the right kind of legal framework in place for these issues or do we have to rethink a lot of the legal principles because of the changes in technology? Look, I, I think the following statement is true. Um, if you're trying to figure out how you put a mix together of protections, self-help 
is 99 point something percent of the problem. Legal remedies are something less than 1% of the problem, pretty much across the board. And it's because it takes only one leak for the information to go global, which means that you have to stop all the holes simultaneously, and you cannot do that. Um, You can slow it down, but that's all. So what you have to do is to make sure that you really have security systems that work. Now, I mean, in this particular case, by the way, I mean, one of the reasons it's particularly odious is that the threats are not only to release more information, but basically to use physical force against people who watch this movie, which suggests that what's going on here is part of a campaign of intimidation. And so... Once you do that, I think, in effect, if I were the Justice Department and I saw the connection between the intimidation and the releases, I think I would probably get involved in this thing, at least to the point of suggesting to the media guys, uh, this is getting awfully close to dangerous territory. You know, for years, we never really worried over much about the line between um, the publish of abstract advocacy of a given ideals and the incitement to violence of one form or another. And all of a sudden, this thing is coming back in a fairly serious way. And I do think that if, God forbid, some violence should happen at some of the theaters where some of this stuff is shown, um, if it is shown, it will create a major backlash and will start to lead people to try to re-examine even cases like Bartnicki. I'm not a fan of the Supreme Court jurisprudence on this subject matter, as I said before. I don't think there's anything magical about the First Amendment which allows you to treat stolen information differently from the way in which you treat stolen goods. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.